0: Hey, Real Estate rock stars, listeners. This is Aaron Amuchastegui. Hey, this next episode is a special episode. It's a special episode because it's actually a new podcast that I've been launching with three other guys. So we've been talking about this for months. The idea was to get essentially four guys together that we all have podcasts, you know, some related in real estate, uh, some related in kind of some other industries. And we wanted to get together and kind of talk about all of the issues in the world, the economic data, the real estate data, you know, forecasting for like this, um, you know, no holds back as we look at some of the news that's out there and the statistics. And we all give our opinions, sometimes differing opinions on what we think is going to be happening with the markets and with the future of the U.S. So I hope you guys really, really like this. So you know, let me know how it goes. You know, as you guys listen, please reach out. Let me know if you think that this is a great new format for a podcast. Uh, for now, we're just going to be releasing it on the four of our podcasts, uh, kind of individually. And if you guys start to like it, maybe we'll launch its own page. Maybe we'll keep doing it like this. But I hope you like this as much as I did. So buckle up, uh, ready to listen. To the first episode of the Kings Table.
1: Welcome everybody to the Kings at the Round Table, our first episode. What's up, guys?
0: Dude, I'm Hello. excited.
1: How's it going? All right. So I wanted to introduce the format of the podcast to all the new listeners uh, really quick and maybe we'll go around the horn really quick about our intentions and goals and, and what this is all about for each of us. Um, and then I'll do a little bit intros and we'll just get into the topic. So for the audience, you know, our our goal here is to uh, get together at least once a week, uh, trying to bring you guys raw, authentic, unscripted, no bullshit content. Uh, we're just going to get together. We're going to not prepare for this. We're going to come up with three or four topics every week, and we're just going to riff and, and be raw and real for the audience. Um, and one of our intentions really was to be completely, uh, I guess, authentic and uh kind of show people behind the scenes of what's really going on in our lives and our businesses and how we think about economics in the world and, and all that fun stuff so i'm really excited for this uh these all these gentlemen are amazing and i'm excited to be the hostess with the mostess and be able to start this process so firstly i want to introduce uh the one and only the sage mike ayala welcome to the podcast my friend Hey, I'm so excited to be here.
2: And did he say hostess with the mostest? Hostess. Hostess with the mostest?
3: I just like envisioned you with like big old boobs and a butt for a second when you said that.
2: Just
1: wait, baby. Just (laughs) wait. I'm going to show up like that next time. need to make
2: sure his pronouns are correct.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We also have, let me keep continuing here. We also have Matt Atchison, a.k.a. Maddie, AK, a.k.a. The Hero of Hospitality. Welcome to the podcast, my friend.
3: My brother, it's great to be here. I am fired. We've been we've been talking about this for like a month now. So it's great to get all four of our talking heads on a video. And I'm excited about this because I think podcasting has really shifted a lot over the last few years and it's gotten more saturated. And I think with that, it's kind of some topics and styles of podcasting have gotten really played out and kind of vanilla and bland. So I'm excited for us to kind of Throw all our different spices together and see what we can uh, season up in this this episode.
1: Yeah, that's right, man. Um, no showmanship here, right, Matt?
3: That's right. We're we're coming in raw and real, baby.
1: And last but not least, we have Aaron Amuchestegi, also Nailed known it. as the Mooch, also known as the Trend Spotter, on the podcast.
0: Dude, I like that. I like everybody's nicknames, dude. The uh, you you're like getting, that? You're getting us started off strong the um i'm pumped about this you know the i'm pumped to see your guys' faces and get to chat you know all of us are part of so all of us host our own podcast so that makes it fun and interesting we're, we're used to like one-on-one and kind of building up our own stuff but all of our podcasts are very like specific on our niche and so there's some things we're able to talk about and something i mean we can talk about whatever we want but really our listeners are niche. So where we can only talk about specific things or we should, I always get requests from other people that are like, Hey, can I be interviewed? It's like, no, that's not my, my target. And so I'm excited about this because we get to mit, to mix together. Like all of our, our like audiences plus additional stuff. And, you know, I think all of us are part of masterminds and we go to, you know, I met you know, two of you guys through GoBundance. And the, and the cool thing about like, when we go to masterminds, you'll be sitting there like we have events and we have speakers and that stuff's cool but the most fun is when we're all like sitting around a table after the event and there's three or four guys chatting about like topics in the world that are important and i come out of this like i'm i'm not only excited to like come and talk and share but i feel like it's going to be interesting conversations for us i think it's going to be enjoyable i think i'm going to i'm going to learn from you guys every time i'm going to change my mindsets like it's it that's like like we're talking about kings of the round table, right? Like the it's the same thing. That's the best part about the masterminds when there's like three or four of us sitting around, and we start talking about topics and we're like, wow, this is I hadn't thought about it that
1: way. Well, Mikey, you came up with the name. Do you wanna talk a little bit about why we've named it that for now? Um, and where that was inspired from.
2: Yeah, th- this is something that, uh, again, Maddie A said this, but this is something that we've been talking about for a while. And I was sitting in Pinehurst two years ago with Chris Harder and Kyle Depies, and we were sitting having breakfast after a few days of golfing. And I just started realizing that, like, every time you're sitting at a table and, and the, the conversations start happening, they start to escalate um, because somebody brings a version to the conversation that, you know, maybe is a different viewpoint or a different perspective, or they come from a different background industry. And then, you know, going forward, every time I talk to Ashish, because he's got like this global perspective on manufacturing, which gives me a different viewpoint because I'm like, you know, hearing on the news that like China's falling apart. And Ashish is like, no, man, China's like wide open. And so there's this concept when a bunch of people, you know, I mean, really, if you just go back to the Knights at the Round Table, like, you know, kings coming together and really having conversations from, you know, different territories, different backgrounds. What are the people saying? that's kind of where the concept came from. And then it was just kind of like, okay, who are the right people to sit at the table? And, um, so, you know, the, the, the Kings at the table, I mean, that's really the conversation. And, and again, bringing different bu- viewpoints, um, to the conversation, I think is important because again, we get in these echo chambers and I, I sometimes get sidelined by my own thoughts. And so to have perspectives from other people, I think is extremely important.
1: Yeah, I want to just add to that because I think it's really easy for guys like us to control our own narrative. We can have people on our podcast that think like us, that, that are supporting our own narratives and, and 100%. almost pitching our, talking, talking our own books. Right. And so I think what's going to be fun about this and, and this group has been, you know, we've been talking about this for a few months. We've been curating, uh, the conversation behind the scenes to be able to really have a much more dynamic conversation. And just like Mooch said, like we're here to learn. And bring our ideas and argue and discuss and challenge each other about everything we're doing. Um, so I'm just, I'm just pumped for this. And I have no idea where it's going to go. So it's going to be good.
0: Yeah,
3: wow. if anything, we want the audience, you guys, the listeners, to you know, give us that real raw feedback. Because ultimately, while it is stuff that self-serving, we're like, hey, we want to talk about these things you know, we want yes. to know about the, f- the, the feedback that you guys are, are seeing and feeling and what you like and what you don't like, because obviously there is a component of, you know, while it is about what we want to do and what we think is missing in the podcasting world or in our own lives, our own conversations, you know, this is also uh, with an intention of, of service, right? And bringing value. So if you guys have thoughts and comments, you guys can, you know, reach out to us on social media. You can text us, whatever it may be. Um, but we, we, we want to take some of that feedback and find ways to 2.0, 3.0 and continue to, you know, optimize this, uh,
1: this platform. Yeah, let's do it. <clears throat> Aaron, any final words before we get into it, dude?
0: No, man, let's do this. Let's rip let's the band-aid go. off. Okay.
1: So we, we're, we're going to start a little bit more with finance, economics, overall market conditions and, and where we think things are going this episode, um, We have a lot of really granular, small little topics we want to process, but we thought that for the first episode, we kind of give people a broad stroke approach about where we think things are going and where we're at in the state of the economy. Um, So we've picked a few topics. We're going to start out with uh, interest rates and inflation. Uh, You know, Last week, the interest rates were raised about half a percent. Um, Inflation seems to be starting to get a little bit under control. Um, and we're all talking about, or I guess the economy is talking about, you know, a soft landing is going to, where's the bottom going to fall out and what's, where's, where's the opportunity. So let's kind of start there. Um, uh, Mooch, maybe I'll throw this to you. Tell us kind of what you're seeing, why'd the Fed do what it did. And, um, let's just start at that topic.
0: Yeah. I remember doing an interview last September, right? So the, uh, on my, so almost a year ago. And at the time, the Fed was just starting to raise rates. And kind of my big prediction at the time was I said, hey, the Fed's going to continue to raise rates for like the next nine months because it takes about nine months to have a change start to happen, right? And they were going to be aggressive. And I tried to look into the current chairs, who they studied, right? And they talked about how they loved the old Fed chairs back in the 80s. They loved those guys. And if you look at the, so I was like looking at the charts back in the 80s and how extreme, and I remember uh, my family being in real estate in the 80s and the impact of interest rates as they went up. So back in September, I'm like looking, all right, the Fed chair is talking so well about how back in the 80s, they did it right. He's going to be super aggressive. They're going to push it. And I remember saying they're going to raise rates for the next nine months because it'll take nine months to see any sort of impact from it. And so far I was, and and a lot of people reached out to me and said, no way. Not a chance. All these viral videos were even going in December, like, oh, rates are going to be back in the fives, you know, and here's why. And, like, all this supply-demand stuff, all these guys that were going viral, and people were telling me how wrong I was. And I guess the only sense that I was wrong was even though I had predicted longer and steeper and higher than anybody, they're still going, right? It's been more than nine months uh, at Mm -hmm. this point. And the other thing I said back then, which I still think, um, you know, works and I still think is standard. um, So takes. I was thinking they're going to raise for about nine months. And then they would hold for about nine months because it takes after that last raise, it takes anywhere from six to nine months to see the final impact of the raise, yep. right? So like right now, if the, if next month is the last time they raise, we're not actually going to see how bad that gets until March or April uh, of next year, and then once we see the absolute fallout of the economy as far as it's going to get, right? So I agree with like soft landing happening in some industries, and but but there's other industries where it's not feel I'm not feeling that way uh, it depends on kind of where you are you know where you live like everything like everything else there's like some economies and some cities that are that are totally different so so I think like maybe may next year they'll start they'll see that the panic and they'll go okay time to lower rates again they said they had to break the economy because they knew they knew how to fix it by lowering rates and I guess the the last thing i want to say on it is like the impact that i've seen and that i'm feeling right so is inflation getting tamed from the statistics that they're releasing um yes and again that stuff is so delayed so it takes some time what we're feeling inside our real estate businesses is the you know 18 months ago we we're 100 occupied 99 percent occupied over like 850 900 units and right now we've got like 65 vacant houses So we're like $120,000 a month less in rents than we were then, which that's a big killer on the pro forma. Historically, as um, we do renewals, I remember 2021 at renewal time, we would say your rent is gonna be either 8% higher or rent, 8% higher than it is now, or rents estimate, whichever is higher. And some rents were increasing 15 to 20%. And in one of my markets, there was like 30 houses on the market for rent. And so we could kind of make the market. Well, this year, there's 700 houses for rent in that area and when renewals are coming we're lowering rates you know anywhere from like 100 bucks to 300 bucks a month on this average price rent of 1500 like price is super super important mm. for people it is coming down to money people don't have as much of the excess stuff the you know excess credit is kind of winding up like people it takes I remember when I went from like, being a money saver to a money spender. Like, I was very tight, very tight, and I got to a certain level of success. I was like, okay, I can start spending some of this money. And then at different times in my career or my life when I had to correct that because I was, like, my business and is that, shut down. That's what companies. you're
1: seeing. You're seeing that with the 65 vacancies, people yeah. just tightening up.
0: Total, Yeah, way tightened tighten it up. Hmm.
1: Do you think they, they should have sped up the interest rate hike instead of doing it over a year slowly just done it much faster and what are the impacts of of doing that yeah i think it's so
0: real estate is my jam right like real estate is what i do and i got to see a lot of what what you know rates did essentially from the 80s to now i saw what they're was going still on low,
1: right aaron they're still low i
0: compared they're low the compared 80s. to like the 80s like seven percent was standard for the longest time um But like 80% of people with mortgages are under 5%, something like that. So it's so should they have done it faster? I'm biased in the sense that I'm kind of upset the way they did it, right? Because it penalizes one industry more than any other industry. Like rates are what they can control, but there were other things they could have done to like tighten up money and tighten up the economy. Like the interest rates was just one way, right? Like the one way they could have done it. There's ways to like, lower unemployment benefits, or there was, you know, there was ways to like, you know, you know, reduce that to get more people in the workforce. There were, there, are all sorts of other incentives they could do to take cash out of the market. And I feel like real estate is getting punished the most. Now, real estate build, builds a lot of the rest of the economy during like housing booms. There's lots of construction. There's so many jobs that are fueled, like neighborhood markets are full of people buying lunches when there's houses getting built and when the houses aren't. So, um, so I'm biased in the sense that I'm, uh, Real estate gets penalized more than anything else in it. That's why they're like, it's a soft landing because there's plenty of industries that are kind of fine and okay. Like, should they have done it faster? I think they probably should have done it faster and then stopped and waited a few months. Because again, it takes, like by the time they finish in like January, February, I think that like the, the damage they were trying to set could have kind of stopped. And by now we would have um, started to see that impact. So I would have preferred a, a slower, a less, maybe fast at the beginning, but then cut it off faster.
3: Maddie, how about you? I mean, I think it's, <clears throat> it's hard to, you can theoretically play out those scenarios, right? Cause really, if you look back in history, this was the fastest and highest they've raised rates yeah. as aggressively as they did. I mean, you can go back and look at the kind of historical charts, which ultimately is what impacted the yield curve in the way that it did. So mm-hmm. I, I do agree, right? Could they, instead of doing 25 bits have done 50 or when they were doing 50, done 75 and been a little bit more aggressive and then waited it out, you know, a couple months to see as that lagging data came in from their leading actions. It's hard to say, right? Because when you think it, about it, like in hindsight, right? It is. Yeah. But it's one of those things where I like, I look at the real estate market. I mean, single family housing still really is not, (laughs) it's not that impacted. Like it's slower. Dave Ramsey put out a good piece. I don't know. It was like earlier this year and he's like, you know, people are concerned because of what they're doing with rates. It's going to completely crash the real estate market. He's like, no way. Like, I think he referred back to in the eighties when he was selling real estate, he's like, rates were like 12 or 13%, it didn't crash the market. It just, the volume down. of yeah. what was actually taking place was significantly less, but values actually relatively stayed steady. And I know the Fed has a challenge, right? With them trying to use this, you know, cost of capital to slow the market and have this trickle down the tree effect. And at the same time, the second they start cutting rates, Because we haven't seen values drop that much. And we'll just use single family. Commercial is a different story. And I think obviously a lot of us playing commercial. But that being said, on single family, the second they start cutting rates and housing prices are still where they're at and inventory is still where it's at, we're going to see another bull run on, on single family housing again. Us as investors, right on your side, Aaron, is, well, yeah rentals and rental rates, things became saturated, people are starting to look at their pennies a little bit tighter. You know, I think that is, you know, something that we as investors see, but in the overall market itself, single family real estate is still as safe and as hot as it's ever been. Right. So I think the Fed had a pretty, for the most part, I think they did a relatively decent job. Of course, there's things you can look at and pick apart, but I'm very interested and I agree 100% with what Aaron said. I think they're talking about maybe one more small bump in in rates. And I think that's just them being hawkish on trying to keep that narrative somewhat aggressive. That being said, as we start to see the data come in, and I think they're going to pause and stay. I just think rates are going to stay where they're at longer than people would like to see them stay there. Maybe they start to cut a little bit at the beginning of next year, um, but I, I think that they're gonna, they're going to keep this benchmark in this range a little bit longer than people might want to see it, which I think mm-hmm. is somewhat necessary to allow some of these other variables that economists really have not seen in previous cycles, like they didn't have AI
1: because, back in, yeah.
3: You know, they didn't have work from home. They didn't have COVID, you know, trends and, and, and kind of things that, again, there's a lot of smart economists that are like, yeah, we, d- we didn't see this, you know, over the last three, four cycles of my career. So I think there's still a lot of these new variables that are early data points that are still to be determined how they really tie into a lot of the historical data they've used to drive and set the economy.
1: Right. Mike, sorry, you want to address the question? Then maybe also, I guess I'm curious about how, because I think that some, we were talking about housing for a minute, but you also have to consider that we injected a ton of money into the economy. People had a ton of stimulus. You know, there was no place for people to go. So there wasn't a a bunch of velocity and people moving. And the unemployment was super low too. So we didn't have a ton of unemployment to to basically tank the real estate market, which we're just, I guess, talking about residential real estate for a minute. But I want to talk about that and I also want to talk about consumer spending. But why don't you answer that first? Well, I'm I'm curious, and, and we can circle back to this in a bit, but I'm curious if you know the vac- the
2: vacancy and I've I've been thinking about this to some degree. I'm curious if the vacancy is because of you know, also inventory that's finally shaking loose and coming online too, Aaron. Um, you know, cause there's, yeah, I, I think we've all been watching this for a while, but there's so many apartment complexes coming online and, and even housing that got slowed down for a bit that's coming on. So I'm, I'm just curious and, and I'll just plant that and, and maybe we can pick it back up here in a bit, but I'm wondering if that's some of the issues. Cause I've been wondering when um, additional inventory actually becomes a problem with some of this too. But anyway, back to the you know, the interest rates, the thing, that I, the thing that I was trying to wrap my brain around a while back, and, and I, I said this a couple of times and, and got argued with quite a bit, but the thing that I was saying is if inflation is 7% and interest rates are 7%, then is money really zero? And, you know, some, somebody was like, you know, challenging me as, well, it's not that simple. None of it's that simple. But like the reality at the end of the day is, and I don't want to be the guy that says, you know, we've never been here before because, you know, I've learned so much from like Aaron honestly, when, when 08 happened, I was in a gold mining market, which the community that I was in exploded because gold was going up and, and I was a pretty new real estate investor. I think I had maybe five properties at that point in time. So I haven't really fully experienced a downturn. So I don't want to be the guy that's like, I mean, I've experienced it, but not, not like I I wasn't heavily in real estate. Um, and my business was exploding. So I don't want to be the guy that's like, you know, it's different this time, but you know, Maddie, you were kind of, touching on this too, when we look at the amount of money that we've pumped into the system and, you know, I'm a huge fan of Kiyosaki and, and, you know, the conspiracy theorist guys. I mean, I was in first mastermind I was ever in was the real estate guys. And these guys would be considered being like, you know, crazy conspiracy theorists guys. But I mean, I've been being told since 2007, 2008, 2012, 2016, that the world's ending. And, and with all this money that we're pumping in, inflation's going to spiral out of control. And then you know, when it finally happens, we're shocked by it. Well, we pumped freaking I mean, we pumped trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of money into the system. And so again, you know, kind of back to the, we got to get to a practical perspective on what do we do with this? But for me, I don't, I don't think 7% interest is expensive. And to Aaron's point, you know, what do we do with that as real estate investors and having to refinance loans that, you know, people were projecting it, 5% or four and a half, that's a real problem that's going to mm-hmm. flush out here shortly. And I think that's one thing that we really need to be talking about because even though we're talking about residential real estate and, and everybody's saying there's not going to be a problem in the residential real estate market, well, I don't think that there is going to be compared to what it was before. But if we have some serious problems in the commercial banking sector, those banks are the same banks. Mm. And so I just wonder what happens with liquidity and lending and tightening and how that does end up trickling into all aspects of, of the economy. And and so, I, you know, when I think about, I'm primarily invested in mobile home parks, but I've got a bunch of single families still in my personal portfolio. I've got a commercial building. I've had a commercial building listed for a while that I'm getting no, it's a great building. And if I would have sold it two years ago, I should have sold it two years ago, but I'm getting no action on it. And it's because, you know, I think everything's kind of in this stalemate period where people just don't know really what to do. And so, you know, the question was where are we at with inflation and interest rates and what do we think about it? Well, I actually don't think that I I'm with Maddie. I think that interest rates are going to have to stay up longer than any of us are going to want it. Even, you know, we're coming up against an election next year, which is, you know, kind of coming into some times where I think there's going to be some pressures created from, from all sides that are trying to control some of this. But the reality is at some point in time, we have to listen to the music and realize that we've we're, We're dealing with a lot of problems that have been created over. We've created a
1: lot of problems. Is that what you're
2: saying? (laughs) Yes, over a long time. And it's not we might fly through this unscathed, but if we do, and even if there is a soft landing, at some point in time, one of two things is either gonna happen. We're gonna have to deal with this, or we're in this new period of time. That If we were talking about this three years ago, we would, we would say that, it. I mean, even leading up to COVID and during COVID, the whole concept of modern monetary theory and a big push and, you know, and the whole conversation was about MMT and everybody's like, that'll never happen where money doesn't matter. Well, I'm, I'm also wondering if we're in a period of time where money doesn't matter anymore, um, where some of this MMT is actually starting to flush out. And, you know, we're all of us are a big fan of um, Chamath and And this is like his viewpoint, right that like it doesn't matter
0: it doesn't matter I love
1: that I, I don't know if I don't know if I fully agree because I don't fully understand like how you know you know seven percent interest or inflation is actually not that bad, considering we just added twenty trillion dollars to the debt we've never done that, so it's the amount of money that we added and the amount of money we're printing and borrowing, it's just, it's absurd. So when, I th- I when you say that money I doesn't it, matter, I, I don't quite understand what that means yet.
3: Uh, well, I think what you, that's the key point right there was yet. I still think we're, we're like, people feel like, man, it's been a long time since COVID. But I feel like with... All of the data that has come in and all of the actions that have been taken and all of the responses and what's trickled in as a result of those things, I still feel like we're in like the second or third inning of really understanding when all the dust settles and clears and we somewhat have a little bit clearer picture of, and you can bucket it into whatever industry or topic you want to associate it with. I still feel like we're so early in like in a decade, we'll be able to look back and start connecting a lot more dots and, and seeing right. more clearly on some of these things. But I'm with you. I'm like, I don't necessarily know how to feel about that yet because I don't feel like we're actually to a place where I can wrap my head around something that is like I'm taking all of what I should be taking into account right now. I feel like I only have five of the you know 25 puzzle pieces I need to figure out putting together to really assemble a clear picture of what my thoughts are.
1: I agree. You and know, then also, I mean, Aaron, maybe you have a comment on this, but there's an entire two generations of people that have never lived in a world above 3% interest.
0: That's crazy. So Changed, yeah, changes everything. I, one thing I wanted to point out, or like Matt had said, like, Hey, single family hasn't been touched or hasn't been hit that hard. Right. But it depends on, so sales price, when we think about crash, there's like two very different things, right? So like sales prices have, are, are solid or fine. Maybe worst markets are down 10 or 15% from peak time. Others are gaining. But the volume, the slower part of that volume makes such a substantial impact to the rest of the world. And as you start to get into consumer spending, like I think it gets to go into that example, like you think about how many billions of dollars of mortgage refinances were happening in 2021 mm-hmm. and where you could call up a mortgage broker, could call up their buddy and say, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to refinance your house. You're going to pull out $50,000 in cash and your rates and your payments actually going down. Um, and they go, okay. And then four months later, they do it again. And four months later, they do it again. And so those mortgage brokers are making half a million, million, $2 million a year. On selling a pretty simple product, and then that whole business, mortgage refinances, went to zero, like went from billions overnight. to zero, overnight. And then same thing with selling a house. Like if you're looking at like, um, I was pulling. I'm going to pull a ch- like a chart really quick if we if it'll let me, um, maybe, just to like this is like Texas. And you're thinking about volume and that impacts. Now right now we're seeing like this uptick that's pre- pretty awesome for people that are listening. Like back in. You know, July, 2021, we saw 38,000 homes sold in a month. Um, And then if you go, but if you go to just a few months ago, it was 22,000. So that's like a 40% decrease in volume. And now we're seeing that kind of volume pick up again on sales, but volume is still the lowest it's been since, you know, since beginning of 2020, and when you look back at like what it was like in the first couple months of the year, like January, 2023, 17,000 homes sold. Like last time it was that low was like mid 2019. So it's just when, when volume goes down that much, it's a big deal. And then kind of that other idea of all that extra stimulus that went out there. We knew, I knew people that got like million dollar PPP loans that just essentially got forgiven. It's was like, hey, oh, here's a yeah. million dollars in free cash. Most of our people were contractors, so we didn't have access to any of the PPP loans like- um, as we got to see that, but there's a lot, there's a lot of other things that kind of impacted uh, that inflation dramatically. And as we start to look at values, there's just, there's just more than one part to that equation. So like s- sales prices in general are fine, but, but yeah. some, you think, let,
1: go ahead. Sarah, one me. last
0: thing we think about, like, I remember like t- back in 2000, Maddie had said, we'll know in like five years what the real impact is. And that's true. Right. Remember September 11th happened. And one of the first things that happened after most people don't realize that like the housing boom of like Oh five really started after September 11th happened. And it was like, let's lower rates. Let's like start doing stimulus, like not to the same level, but that created the housing boom and the housing peak of Oh five was essentially like correcting our crisis of September 11th. And they didn't see that until like Oh seven when it started crashing. Mm-hmm. That was really that period. So it took six years to see the impacts of the change. Um, and so now we're, we're, all, we're halfway, we're, we're on like the third inning. Yeah.
1: Mike, let's pivot to commercial real estate and banking. Because I think those two things are kind of tightly together. Um, where do you see that going? The, you know, there's interest rates uh, are increasing. A lot of these properties around the world, these class A office buildings in some of the biggest cities in the country were purchased at. Two caps, three caps um, by pretty large institutional investing companies, insurance companies, uh, these large institutional financing companies, 401ks, et cetera. Um, San Francisco, I think, is at like 40% vacant now in, in commercial real estate or from homes. Still a challenge for major cities. I just read an article that I think Chicago is leading the effort. But San Francisco is a ghost town. Um, so tell us how all this plays out and what you think in terms of commercial, and we'll kind of go around the horn. Commercial falls apart.
2: Fed steps in, Bails out commercial. Ugh. We print another $25 trillion. Inflation rages out of control.
1: Again, like <laughs> it's, it's cycle two. You're well, getting crazy. I mean, it, I, so this is the thing. Are talking the end about of the day huh? that, go ahead. Sorry.
2: Well, I, by the way, I don't know if that's actually what, what's going to happen, but the reality is like, I, I just kind of, so with all of this, and, and I think, you know, I think what's brilliant about this group is being able to just look at all sides of the coin. Listen, I'm not going to bet my farm on what I just said. I, that's just hmm. like an extreme example but I think the takeaway that we really need to come back to in all of our conversations here is like what do we do with this?
1: Yes. And absolutely. I think one of the
2: I think one of the main reasons why having conversations like this is so valuable because you get to, you know, you get to see a lot of different viewpoints and then you get to decide, okay, what do I do with this? And the reason why I said, you know, bet the farm. I mean, nobody listening should bet the farm on any one viewpoint because there are so many things that are beyond our control. So let me bring it back to what I your question around the commercial side of things. Um, I actually think that, and I don't know exactly how this plays out, but I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, challenges coming even in the multifamily arena. And yeah, I think specifically office is going to really have some problems and anybody that's been paying attention or listening or, or looking at any kind of statistics um, you know, San Francisco might be an extreme example and they're probably getting a lot of what they deserved over time because of policies and, and everything else. And I think, I think some of the reason why you see so many companies requiring their employees to come back to the office is maybe partially because of you know efficiency and culture issues, et cetera. But also like when you start looking at the bottom line dollar and we've got all of these leases, so many companies have tried to sublease and there's nobody subleasing anymore. That's not happening. And so at the end of the day, what do we, what do, we do with all this? I think it's a great way for companies to do several things. Number one, bring their, bring their employees back together so we can increase efficiency. Um, mm-hmm. number two, um, offload and downsize our employee pool. And I'm talking generalized. I'm not doing this cause I'm running pretty lean anyway, but downsize our employee pool because hiring went through the roof in the last, you know, three to five years and you couldn't find help, et cetera. And the best companies in the world are always looking for reasons. I'm going to say this unpolitically, um, to offload, you know, your totally. bottom 10 or 20% of performers. So I think a lot of that is opportunity, um, for people to do that business wise, but also I think a lot of it is bringing, people back into, oh my God, we've got this 10 you know, year lease and what are we gonna do with it and we can't. So there's markets, back to your question, there's markets that are gonna get hit worse than others. Everybody points to San Francisco. From what I've been reading and seeing too, I mean, Austin has some, some issues in itself when it comes to office space, et cetera. But again, I think what, I think what gets really interesting is how intertwined all of this actually is. Because yeah, the single the family guys are saying, it's not gonna affect single family this time. And the multifamily guys are saying, everything's fine. And the reality is, when you look at the macro lending environment, it is all intertwined Mm. because banks are banks. And at the end of the day, the liquidity comes from the top, which it's it's the Fed, it's the Fed, it's the Treasury, it's all intertwined. It's the overnight rates. It's the big banks. I actually, if I had a tinfoil hat, I'd put it on. But every time we see this, we see the big banks just get bigger and bigger. And I think we're going to see it again. You know everybody's Agreed. talking about the regional banks and the challenges and everything else, but the, at the end of the day, when a consolidation happens, it really doesn't matter. I still think that the Fed is going to have to step in if they want to keep if they want to keep the bottom from falling out from underneath of us. I think there's going to have to be some more bailouts that come, and I think it's going to be in the commercial sector. The, the last thing I'll say on this too, I think that there is going to be some real issues, and I won't share charts, but. There's some problems coming up even in the multifamily space um, when it comes to, I was just looking at some this morning, when it comes to bridge loans and loans that were due and people that are going to need to refinance loans and are not going to be able to get loans without bringing additional liquidity to the table, because this is what's going to need to happen. If, if you have a loan that needs to get rewritten and the bank's in the driver's seat on that thing and you don't have the cash flow to cover it, just simple you know, debt service coverage ratio because interest rates are higher than what you were projecting, then you're gonna to have to come to the table with some additional liquidity, some additional capital, some additional reserves. And I think a lot of operators are not gonna be able to do that. And so when uh, there's some statistics, I think, uh, I think October, November, there's some serious um CMBS That's when the A hundred percent. And when that starts happening, if there's, one, if there's two things that I think might save us in all of this, I think it's number one, there's so much liquidity on the sidelines and people waiting to come in that have been waiting for the, the blood in the streets. I'm not saying that maybe some of these prices and values don't drop, but I don't think we're going to go through a period of time where it takes one or two or three or five years for some of this inventory to flush out. I think it's going to happen pretty quickly. We've it's already get up quick. It is, and we've already seen people that are retrading without it ever even going to market because they're coming in, they're recapitalizing, they're restructuring. Yep. The original investors are you know, maybe taking some losses on it, but things are happening off market. And so at the end of the day, I don't know how much value we're going to really see single family drop, multifamily, probably not so much either. The office space, I think, is screwed in the long term, but it just depends on how long that flushes, it takes to flush out too, because if it takes, if there's not enough liquidity and it takes longer, then we will see values of apartment buildings and stuff drop too, And if vacancy is an issue, which Aaron is saying it is, um, then that could be where the the prices really start to fall and we start seeing some real problems. And the second thing that could save us in all of this is, again, Fed steps in, bails out commercial this time around. And I don't know what that all looks like. I'm not saying it's still going to be an easy (laughs) ride, but that just means we're printing a lot more money and we're still in an inflationary environment. It's interesting to me because they've been battling inflation, but what they did in 2020 and 2021 was what created it. So like, Mm -hmm. I I mean, it's this, it's a cyclical monster that just keeps perpetuating. So I don't know if they're going to change their tune on any of it.
1: I don't think they will. Maddie, did you want to comment to it?
3: Yeah. I mean, I don't think they will. I'm 100% in agreement with Mike. I mean, if you look at the numbers since 2010, average number of banks that have failed per year is approximately 60 banks. And I think we're going to see a lot more banks fail. It's not like it's uncommon, I think the bigger ones are going to get bigger and there's going to be more consolidation. And I think that, like, there was a a study that the Fed does every year. They do kind of like their doomsday stress test scenarios. And even with a lot of some of the CMBS, you know, and the kind of commercial distress that's starting to mount, and, you know, they've kind of phased it out of, it's Mike said, October, November. And it really kind of starts trickling out from their arms resetting, bridge debt, you know, expiring, things along those lines. Worst case scenario, it actually, the, the stress test was relatively decent. And it's because there's so much liquidity with, in my opinion, the big players at the top. And it's the middle that's been squeezed and, you know, ultimately the the smaller, you know, individuals are just their coffers are running dry. So I'm very curious in this next cycle, and we kind of talked about this question of like, is it just going to be Wall Street that wins through this process and middle class and the poor just become poor? Or is there going to be some real opportunity for, or what is the opportunity for the mid-size groups or mom and pop organizations that want to capitalize on it, because who's going to be able to go and take a swing at a $100 million office building in downtown San Francisco? I don't mm. know too many groups that are capable with a balance sheet and liquidity to go and do that, right? So I, I'm, I'm interested to see where you guys think the wealth building opportunities are going to be in commercial real estate in this next cycle, because obviously we know if you look at all the asset classes, industrial is still on fire. Distribution centers, data centers, I don't see that going. And then and, and the last development boom for industrial, which was really back in like the 90s and early 2000s, they underbuilt and there hasn't really been any more building for industrial. So that market product is going to have super high demand with super low inventory. And you go through kind of all of these different asset classes in commercial real estate The only one that seems to have like the real, real frothy, like, oh my gosh, it's going to be a bloodbath that at least everybody can point to right now is office. And it's either going to die or it's going to evolve. And obviously the opportunities are going to be in the evolution of what repurposing and how you can take that footprint and that envelope and that space into some new form of highest and best. So I'm very curious to see where you guys think the opportunities are for maybe high net worth individuals or smaller groups and organizations to step into the batter's box and take a swing at some of these opportunities. Or if they're just not going to have a big enough stick to swing against the Wall Street money, that's really the ones that are sitting on the sidelines going, we got a shitload of dry powder. And while everybody else thinks things are, you know, starting to improve, smart money is saying we still got a lot of liquidity and we think there's still some more, you know, some more blood that needs to trickle out into the streets before we really start deploying capital.
1: Yeah. Mooch.
0: This is fun. You know, as you guys are talking, I'm over here like taking notes. It spawns so many different topics and things that I'm like, I wish we had five hours to, (laughs) to talk about and go through. Um, A couple of things that, um, so I agree with you guys on office. It's pretty simple, pretty easy. That's a, that's a no brainer. I went and toured a new office, Building today for ourselves. We were, we, our lease just is up in two months at this b- great big office we have in Austin. And I love it. It's a, just a fantastic building. Um, but when we first got there, Wells Fargo was on the bottom floor. You know, Wells Fargo Lending was on the second floor. So for four story um, office that was fully occupied. And now there's four or five occupants, and I'm the biggest one. And, uh, and my lease is up and I said, uh, you know, I asked them like, Hey, would you, would you be interested in selling? And they're like, no, we're not interested in selling. Um, but even though they're going to be losing my, I mean, my lease was $11,000 a month for my office and the everybody else was smaller. That's in there. And you imagine with how many units they have, what they used to come from. So office that that's easy. And what I'm looking for, when I go look for office, I'm actually checking out some of these WeWorks and things where I can get like a six month lease because even though they're not so negotiable right now, like what can people take action on? Like if you would need an office, even though the office holders aren't super negotiable right now, I think in another six months they will be. So like mm-hmm. some action that somebody can take. I spoke at a meetup last night and I you know, talked a lot about you know, office predictions and resets, and then I'm going to get into your multifamily. And they said, well, what can we do to try to short this? And I said, well, you should look at like some, some of the like the REITs that were created in multifamily and office in like 2018 and 2019 because those are the REITs that have all their five- and seven-year stuff due in the next, like, six to nine months. And so where I think there is going to be bloodbath stuff. But I also think there's going to be bloodbath and multifamily. I'll get into that, like, now. But there's – you know, there's – you know, when you think about Blackstone and the big people that Maddie's talking about, dude, there's eight, $900 million offices right now scheduled for foreclosure this month. Like, giant ones. Ones that Blackstone owns. Ones that all the publicly traded funds own. And they're like, hey, it's just one asset. Right? So we're walking – away from that. And so we're going to see these giant other foreclosures. We've got the Fairmont in Austin, which is a super nice hotel, right? $300 million loan is due in 60 days, right? But with the new valuations and the new, um, you know, rates, essentially the only way they could refinance is if they put a 50 to a hundred million dollars in it. Now it's worth 600 million. The loan is 300, but they can only get like a $200 million loan against it. So now the Fairmont is for sale. So will a $600 million buyer show up in the next 60 days? Probably, maybe. Or will that buyer be a 500 or $400 million? But I know that they were not thinking nine months ago, like, we're going to have to sell this place because no one's going to refinance our loan. But it's all over the news. Like, the Fairmont can't get a loan. Giant, like, downtown Austin, beautiful property. And they're going to have to do a fire sale in order to, like, beat that. So another example that's happening in, in multi... And the so the most common thing that's happening in multifamily right now, million-dollar apartment complex. I'll say $10 million apartment complex the, that was bought two or three years ago. Cap rate 5%. Makes $500,000 a year. I'm getting all these calls from people now. So two or three years later, they got a short-term loan on it, and now it's time to go refinance. They've done nothing wrong. It's still making $500,000 a year. Let's say it's making $550,000 a year now. It's super great. Well, now cap rates are 7%. And what does that mean? So that means like how much do you make on that investment to make it seven? So if it's making $500,000 a year, at a five cap, it's worth $10 million. At a seven cap, it's worth $7 million. So they're coming in for refinance. Hey, your note is due. Everyone's like, cool. They've got an $8 million loan on this. They bought an 80% LTV. They go get an appraisal. Cool, you owe $8 million, but it appraised at seven. You didn't do anything wrong. Everything's performing just like it. The asset didn't change. Everything looks the same, but now it's worth 30% less. So in order to get a fi- finance that, your new value is $7 million. We can give you a $5 million loan. Do you think you can write us a check for $3 million so you can refinance this? So what's happening is people obviously are not able to, to, to get raise extra money again. Like they bought the apartment originally with like $2 million down. Right? They're not going to go raise another 2 or $3 million in 90 days to 120 days. So those are getting foreclosed on, and we've seen a lot of those foreclosures. What's crazy when that happens is when one of those, like, nothing went wrong, forecloses on, $2 million in equity in- invested in that property evaporates. It's totally gone. So that is why the Fed raises rates, because that's, like, how do you remove money from a market? Like you, like you get these huge, huge properties uh, to be able to foreclose. And that is what happened in the 80s. Like when they raised – I talked to these old timers that were some mentors of mine that were investors way back then. And they said the Fed, the Fed saved the world but crushed everybody that was in uh, commercial real estate development because that's the quickest way to evaporate just a ton and a ton of cash. So I think like what the average person, what they can do is – You know, maybe try to short some of those stocks. One of the guys last night that seemed pretty studious, I said, do what the big short did, figure out where those loans are, then tell me when you find them so I can um, short them along with you. Something else that Mike said that I think is like adds to this conversation. He said, What about government intervention? Is that like the only thing that can happen? Um, In in LA, people haven't had to pay rents for 18 months and -hmm. now they have to, like as a pandemic thing. There's $150 million owed now from tenants in LA. No one's paying the back 18 months in rent. No one has that money. So no one, zero people are going to pay their back 18 months in rent. And so now everybody's going to get evicted in LA. And they're telling the mayor, hey, you got to help us. Like, give us $150 million. Like, where's that going to come from? So government intervention is something that's been on my mind. And I have seen about the LA one the most for that. So a possible government intervention that could happen with lending, right? And the sad thing is we'll see some of those seven, eight dollars $800, 900000000 million foreclosures happen a bunch first the only thing i can think of that can happen in lending is the government doing a rate buy down and offering essentially offering these wild rate buy downs for properties um, which the which i don't necessarily think that it would lead to higher inflation again cuz i don't think anybody gains from it really it just prevents the existing equity from evaporating into the like into the ether from those. So the, so the guys come with that, uh, apartment and maybe they can go, oh, we can, you know, if they if there's still 2 million upside down, there's not much they can do, but for the people like the Fairmont, which they're like, their operating operating is the same. They just want to get another $300 million loan, even if it's like 2% more, right? Like the government could do some intervention on that, buying down rates to where it still meets its DSCR stuff. But so much interesting, um, you know, stuff going on. So you're saying,
1: Mooch, basically what you're talking about from an intervention standpoint, is kind of like what the Fed did with, with the depositors after SVB went out. All they had yep. to say was that we'll guarantee the deposits and no one would have moved any money around, but they didn't do that. And so all these banks basically had these treasury bills that were worth 30, 40% less than the, than what they were when they bought them which is what caused the svb in the first place but then yeah. a, apparently i don't know if this is a fact but i heard about this is that they actually made them whole they said we'll buy them back on par which is why you didn't see a bunch of small regional banks. do you guys hear about that or not
2: well th- th- this is how the transfer happens right because That's right
1: you know a jp morgan steps
2: in and says i'll buy it for you know 60 cents on the dollar and the government says to jp morgan we will make sure that you're made whole this is right. how it works. That's what I, I mean. mean. The big yeah, the, yeah, That's the big I mean. the big just keep getting bigger. And um so I yeah, I don't know where I don't know where it ends.
0: The day SVP got announced, I posted that JP Morgan would buy it within three weeks. The uh you know, is yeah. <laughs> We can't hear you, Maddie.
1: Maddie, you're on mute, brother.
3: I was just saying, I I knew. I, I thought the exact same thing when I saw that. I went, oh, Jamie Dimon is loving this. He's licking his chops because he knows he's going to come in there. And exactly, the delta on whatever they get it for, he most likely knows that he's going to be made whole on that. So they're buying a book for pennies on the dollar. I think it's really interesting to think about how government intervention is going to play more of a role in our economics and finance because it feels like... Now more than ever, they are conditioning society, culture to think and feel. Like I think COVID was the perfect testing ground for this of when shit hits the fan, no matter what you believe, if it was you know engineered, natural, whatever, like if and when something catastrophic hits the world or hits a certain economy, can we train people? to do what we need them to do based on the financial levers that we're going to pull. And I think based on how COVID played out, it really showed how quickly consumer behavior, human behavior can be manipulated into doing something very, very specific in a very short period of time. And I know this might be getting into a completely different vein here, but to, to bring it back more towards government intervention, I think there could be more manufactured or engineered things that allow the government to have a reason to step in and people be more and more okay with it as they're conditioned to trust that that is their only option or that that is the best option.
2: Well, it's, it's interesting. Cause like, and I brought this up earlier, but, Pre-COVID, there was conversations for two or three years, a lot of conversations on modern monetary theory. And all of us are like, no, this will never work. You can't do that. Like, You can't just print money forever and everything be okay. Well, then COVID hits and we are living in a time of modern monetary theory. And all of us during COVID are like, okay, dude, I was literally, I mean, I'm getting checks for my children in the mail that I should never be getting. Like what in the heck? and Aaron talked about this earlier, but million dollar PPP loans. And and now we're on the other side of it. So if you would have asked us in 2018, hey, are you okay with modern? If you would have just asked like 50% of Americans, they would have ne- we would have never allowed it. You can't, no. but Maddie, what you're saying is like, there's these things that are engineered that just happen to us or for us um, that all of a sudden now we just become okay with. And so I just sometimes wonder like, what's the next thing? Whether it's office crisis, well, whether it's multifamily, whatever it is, or even what Aaron was talking about with like, you know what's going on with landlords in LA. Well, landlords generally are not really into you know the government giving them money, but if all of a sudden 180 million dollars worth of you know back rents is is not getting paid to them, and the government says it's okay, we're not going to let you you know, lose your rentals. We'll pay for this one way or another, whether it's getting it directly to the tenants or some other way. Now we're okay with the government just giving away free money.
0: Mm-hmm. We're biased. We're getting- yeah.
3: That's a, that's a slippery slope. Cause then once, once you start, where do you stop? Right?
1: Well, we're, we're, we're there's no, there's no stop in place. Right, Matty. I mean, look at it. It's just, there isn't. We're, we're playing whack-a-mole with the government balance sheet. First, you don't I, make them pay their mortgages. Then they're done after eighteen months. Now we're gonna write the landlords' checks for the back pay, or we're gonna give the money so that people can pay. Or it's just like one thing after another.
0: Just ima- imagine tenants not paying rent for eighteen months, and you still have to maintain it. You still have to fix their AC when it goes out. You still have to like be at their you know, beck and call uh, that, if something's going that's wrong. That's a
1: little bit of California for you. I don't know if that happened everywhere. what uh, well, you're <laughs> right. As, no, it's, no, did it didn't happen everywhere. It,
0: yeah, that's it, a little Texas we ended up getting a bunch of the a bunch of rents paid, you know, during that COVID. Like that was a stimulus that we got. I remember when I wasn't getting stimulus, They said, Well, the way that it works though is it will flow uphill to us because the tenants will end up getting whatever money they get deposited, the tenants will give to us because they'll move into bigger places. You know, for no, the people we you guys talk about the Jamie China, thing.
1: Which, the yeah. Stimulus went to China, okay. Yeah. <laughs> talk about the Jamie
0: Diamond thing for listeners that want to understand what we really mean there. There's a good movie, it's like too, too big to fail. It's a, mm-hmm. it's like 10 or 15 years old, but it really talks about, you know how they do government intervention when they need banks to take over other banks. And what you also see in there is it usually takes a f- letting a few fail before they do uh, that yep. intervention. But the government learned. The government learned from past stuff and so they're pushing it. But for a little bit of history, when you're trying to think what might happen if banks start to fail in the future, how should we react? Uh, Too Big to Fail is a great movie that talks about that. And then um, and even that idea of one of the things that I think they did really, really well when that bank went down. Um, and again, where does the money come from and does it cause more inflation? Is they essentially said it, at first it was you're guaranteed your deposit up to like 150 or 250 And then the government just said like by the, before that Monday, like on Sunday night, they said we're just guaranteeing all your deposits anyway. And when they did say that, then everybody was like, there, then there was not a run on the banks. There was not a run on any banks because now we do know that any bank you're depositing in, if it fails, they're just going to back it. So There's no longer like $250,000 per account. Like you're backed, you got your money. And the so now we know how at least this administration is going to act uh, during that time. And so they'll transfer it over to another bank instead, but I don't think you have to worry about moving deposits around.
3: Well, I think what's interesting to talk about too is like, For example, what we're doing right now with our kind of economy as a whole and and the, the financial policy that's being set by the Fed and obviously in hand with the Biden admin. I mean, just this last week, Fitch downgraded us from, what was it, AA plus to AA? Or it was AAA to AA plus. Certain people don't like what we are doing now of course we are the world superpower you know we think of brics and a lot of the stuff that they're doing and more and more people are starting to have this narrative around the dollar collapsing or you know moving back to the gold you know gold reserve there there, there is a story and a narrative for we stay on this path right and this was became more of a conversation when they weren't you know, approving the debt ceiling changes and things like that. We stay on this path of negligent, excessive, unchecked spending, and the world continues, whether it's over five years or 500 years, to move off of what they think is now starting to become more unstable as a currency. That path being something that could potentially lead to very big problems and challenges for the U.S. and the U.S. economy. The other narrative is 80% of the world is backed by the U.S. dollar anyways. And even though they're creating their little bricks, when you think about all of those economies, if they really decided to shift off of that, those economies essentially could potentially crumble just by doing so. And that being such a big risk. So it's, it's a, it's a, I, I struggle to go, what we're doing is fucking insane and then at the same time i go but we're essentially the people who are well, writing we're what the definition of yeah and we're the ones essentially writing what the definition of insanity means anyways and whatever we write it to be it is and everybody has to accept it so i don't know i just is in your guys' opinion what we're doing with our financial policy leading to something that is going to be massively catastrophic Or is it just something that we're the one essentially writing the rules of the game anyways, and it doesn't matter how crazy
0: we get? Are we essential because of, like, our military? No. Or are we essential because of our economic, like, machine that the U.S. is? Or are we essential because everybody wants to live here because of like freedom and what the U S represents, or is that also just something that we tell ourselves because figuring out like why we're essential. Cause there was a time when we could do whatever we wanted because we had the biggest military might in the world. Mm-hmm. We don't, I don't, I don't think we necessarily have that anymore. Um, so I, I just, so I think that the essential part of we can do whatever we want, I think probably I, it's just a question. It's just this, this curious thought of like, why, Like, why can we do whatever we want? And at what point do the scales tip a different way?
1: Right. I think we need to remember that the reason why people need us is because we are still the number one consumer in the world. We still spend so much money and we didn't talk about consumer spending. We may not get to that on this episode, but like, we love spending as Americans. Now we deserve to spend what we earn and we have one of the largest economies in the world, but we love stuff. We love shit and we no longer make any of our shit. So the whole world depends on our ability to buy. They sell us things, they trade with us. And so, you know, it's, I'm getting much more of a global view now in the last three to six months going to the middle East. I'm, I'm here in Europe for a few weeks, but it's, we are still economically, people are still dependent on what we do as Americans, how we consume. And, and it goes down to like culture too. I mean, you know, everywhere you travel in Europe, you hear American nineties music. You don't hear no. I mean, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Okay. like, you hear about beyonce you hear flowers from miley cyrus like the culture of america the the consumerism of america it spreads everywhere and i think there's there's a financial component to this but there's also a c- uh, cultural component to this he'll be back
3: i i like what he brought up though what ash brought up in the in the sense of i think the one thing that at least for me as a you know 35-year-old that I didn't necessarily think about was how strong consumerism, I've just always kind of assumed, I never really, I guess I just never thought about it the way that post-COVID, I had no idea how consumerism is such a critical component and, and strength of America's economy. and and how we operate internationally and globally, but also how it's really the backstop of what keeps this machine rolling. And when you think people are gonna stop spending and then you consistently keep seeing these reports come out of how strong the consumer is, I guess I just didn't realize how freaking strong American consumerism really, really was.
2: Yeah. And, you know, if you look at in that thread and back to what Ashish was saying too, i put this, I shared this the other day, but it was on visual capitalist, California, the GDP of California is in the top 10 nations in the world. Like if California was its own country, it it's in the top 10, um, GDPs in the entire world. Texas is the same as Russia. Just those two States alone. You know, you forget about like New York, and if you if you just look at that visual on visual capital, it's crazy. And so I think that's part of what fuels it. And I, I, Aaron, I think you bring up a good point with you know our military and all of the above. But I think those are just things that you know continue to keep people in tow and step with us. How long will it go on? I'm not you know fully sure. But I, I shared this the other day in our group. But Mexico just took over as the top trading partner with the United States in 2023. And so, you know, Maddie, uh, maybe when Ashish jumps back on, we can talk about this more, but somebody brought up, you know, where are the opportunities? And I was um, having this conversation the other day in, in a group. And I think, you know, when you just look at that, Mexico being the top trading partner, I think that, I think one of the highlights in investment in in America, because again, I don't think we're going to stop spending any time, anytime soon or the consumerism. Mm-hmm. I think it is industrial. I think it is manufacturing. I don't think we're going to, you know, bring complete manufacturing back to America. But when you look at like Mexico being a top trading partner, what does that mean? You know, those last mile storage facilities and even assembling. And you look at, when you look at the, um, the uh, inflation reduction act, like um, which Peter Schiff calls it the inflation increasing act. But when you look at that stuff, like even with the electric vehicles and the HVAC credits and all that stuff, There's so many things in there that they don't have to be made in America. They have to be assembled in America. We're talking about moving all of your manufacturing out of China and moving it back to Mexico. Yeah, seriously.
3: Just playing in your world, right? Which is like, it was just shocking to me how strong the American consumer is and how critical of a building block and foundational piece that is to our economy and our global status and positioning as a whole and, you know, in your world, right? I know you are I want in to that manual. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I want to say two things about this because we, I'm sorry I got cut off there. Um, but, you know, we, we, what I saw in the last couple of years was a really strong desire and an attempt to make things local. And that means trying to bring it to the U.S., even to a certain extent, bringing it to North America, and, and I'm, I'm going to leave, like, high tech out of this because I think it's, you know, we can't talk about chips and say that bringing back chips into the United States is somehow bringing back manufacturing. It's just, like, a national security matter. We decided to bring in chips. But that's a, it's, its own category. When I talk about, like... Shoes and clothes and furniture and and if you just look at look at those few categories of consumables, those are some of the biggest dollars that people spend. Furniture is the largest category that's imported uh, uh, from you know into the United States than any other category. It's the biggest dollar value of stuff we have in our homes. Um, You know, commercially, furniture is I think probably uh, fifteen to $20 billion industry, still one of the largest imports. Uh, and then we have all our stuff, right? Clothes, this and that. And so what I saw in the last few years is a really, really strong desire to bring anything here and nothing got made here. People tried, we brought manufacturing, we, we spun up factories. Um, none of it lasted the only place. I think it's really like still trying is in Mexico. But the U.S. is done. Like it didn't work. Couldn't hire labor. Couldn't spin. You know, you can't spin up supply chain that fast, right? It takes time. Uh, The labor and the infrastructure exists in Mexico, but it's just not reliable. So now you know who's manufacturing everything in Mexico is China. China's going to Mexico for us. We're not going to Mexico helping these factories build infrastructure. China's going there because they know that they have an existential threat of us leaving China the other thing that I wanted to say, the second thing was we were talking a lot about for the last hour, we've been talking about opportunities and situations in real estate and of the opportunities in real estate, but we haven't talked about business because I think that a lot as an operator of a business, I'm not as invested in real estate as you guys, but man, I got to tell you the, the inefficiencies that exist in operating businesses today with these baby boomers you know 60 70 year old guys running these companies that are super inefficient i think that needs to be a category in its own and you're Agreed. looking at businesses at much better returns than you know 7 8% cap rates and and these businesses need a lot of help and again we can probably talk about that for a long time but those are I, the two, I two you're things I think it's on mention. to something
3: super for anybody that's looking for opportunity i think that might be the biggest opportunity through. <laughs> there goes Ashken. <laughs> uh, the, it, the, in this next cycle, I think it is businesses. You got the baby boomers and kind of the silver tsunami of people who are aging out. Cody Sanchez, who we all know and have you know been in masterminds and, and gotten to know Cody over the years, her brand has skyrocketed around buying boring small businesses. And I think she is so spot on in so many different ways for those being the biggest opportunities. Again, we're all biased towards real estate and, and our you know assets, but we all own businesses. And I think for anybody that has the ability to be a good operator, because that's really the key in all of this. I think a lot of people romanticize owning a business, but don't understand really what goes into it. But if you can be a good operator with good systems, a good service or, or business model And just do sound operations. There's some really great margins to be had in businesses. A lot of people are not even trying to sell their business. They're just saying, hey, I'm ready to retire. I'm going to shut this thing down. And I think there's some massive opportunities in businesses. And I'm already seeing it. I know, Mike, you're looking at HVAC companies and other companies. I know, Aaron, you're looking at stuff. I think for any business owner that can find a good Integrator or person work alongside them if they don't want to be that, you know, operator inside the business, or if there is, you know, the opportunity to start layering tech now. Cause like a lot of the, I'm, I'm in contract on a hotel right now. And one of our things that we have done really well that paid massive dividend and ROI for us on that hotel was taking these old, outdated, you know, businesses and layered in property tech and layered in a lot of the new softwares and SaaS that ultimately creates a lot of great efficiencies. And they, this business that we're doing right now, they're literally still handwriting stuff down on paper. So I think those are going to be some really interesting opportunities for people to capitalize on in this next cycle. And COVID had a little bit of that where people were like, hey, this is my perfect time. I'm done, I'm burnt out. I don't wanna deal with this bullshit. I don't wanna deal with the government. I don't wanna deal with reopening and rehiring. I think we're gonna see more and more people age out and look to sell their businesses or there's gonna be some massive business opportunities that again, you know, if you don't wanna be a billionaire and you just wanna make you know, $500,000 a year and you know, make a couple million bucks in one business, you can build a really great life doing that and not have to spread yourself across five, 10, 15
0: different things. In fairness, Ash is in like Spain or somewhere today. It's
1: embarrassing, man.
0: He's on his third, he's on his third device. For anybody my isn't third device. This. this is
1: embarrassing. You know, this is why we we drive America. Down. Let me tell you something about America. Anything we want, we get it immediately. We have the most juice, we have the most bandwidth, we have the most power. There is nothing like America. The moment you start traveling, you just gotta learn to chill, man. Everything's just it is what it is. Things take, what do they take? You get what you get. I'm in a five-star hotel in the middle of Seville, Spain, and I'm on my third internet device because the power is not strong enough to juice my devices here with the phone and the mic. So anyways.
0: Yeah, I've got like four computers with that I could like reach out and touch right now in my home office. So the- yeah.
1: what a fun first episode. There you go, guys.
0: <laughs> yeah. With, well, let's, with let's redundant Wi-Fi. Last
1: thoughts. Mike, you I, want to say? Something? I want
2: to, yeah, yeah. I want to say something on the business front because I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this, and and I agree. There's a ton of opportunity in the business space, but you know what's interesting? Like when you look back at, you know, Aaron's been in real estate for a long time. Maddie's in real estate. Um, Ash, you're, have you, you've been gathering real estate the last couple of years. But here's what's interesting about real estate or business. Aaron, Aaron's not just a real estate investor. He runs he runs businesses. And this is the thing that took me a long time to figure out as, and I kind of want to point this out because like what A was just saying on, you know, small business owners, small business owners are the backbone of America. And, you know, talking to investors all day, every day, the majority of investors that are successful, that actually have the ability to invest passively and are building wealth. They built that wealth in some sort of business. So I agree that, you know, looking at buying businesses is a great opportunity, but here's what's interesting. And I'll say this, when I built my first business from 2004 to 2014, I started investing in real estate because number one, I had a tax problem. Number two, I wanted to build wealth. It was just something I understood. And then, you know, you fast forward to when I exited that business in 2014, my natural progression was to go to real estate because I thought real estate was easy. But then what it took me some time to figure out is like, if you're going to be successful in real estate investing you're actually just building a business. It just happens to mm-hmm. be that real estate is the product. That's Houses, right. multi whatever. And so, at the end of the day, the one thing that I really wanted to address with that and and I love Cody Sanchez and I love, you know, all the move toward, you know, buy businesses and I agree with it. But I think one of the things that maybe we're going to see some challenges, just as you would see in real estate, you know, when you see people run into real estate and they think it's easy and they're going to go buy a single-family house and then they get two and then they get three and they decide all of a sudden that you know, they don't want to fix toilets and they don't know how to outsource and they didn't have money in for property management. I was literally just talking to a, a, a broker, a business broker the other day that brought an HVAC business lead to me from San Antonio and the seller sold it to somebody that came out of some investment group, he called it, that was a younger investor and this HVAC owner that's been running this company for 38 years, sold it to this guy, financing the no, and the guy is running the company into the ground. And I think that, you know, there's going to be a push on the business side, just like we see in real estate so many times where, by the way, I'm all for people getting into business. But the thing about jumping in and buying, you know, a 20, 30 year existing business is there's 20 or 30 years of experience that exists there that this new business owner that has no business experience missed out on. And so while I agree... There's a ton of upside to buying existing businesses. Most businesses fail in the first five to 10 years and all of these statistics, but also the ones that make it, the business owners that make it through that are the ones that have their stripes, just like Amucha has from 2008. And so I think there's another yep. side of this coin that we've gotta be very, yes, go buy businesses, but also don't get in over your head and don't think that just because a business has been running well for the last 20 years, that it's gonna be so easy for you to just step in and run, number one. And then number two, just like that broker calling me, I think there's going to be some consolidation opportunities where people step yeah. in and buy businesses that are in over their head and you can buy them for 50 cents on the dollar, just like you know, we might potentially be seeing in, in, in the multifamily space, uh, as Aaron yeah. was pointing out earlier. So I was going to say, it's,
3: it just like, the, like you're saying on that side, this age of information and masterminds and courses and communities – has really kind of given people access to information that that maybe didn't have access to it before and also access to confidence that they didn't think it was possible for them to be able to do some of these things. I mean, and, I like it. and we, I like we were just talking about this, right? In terms of how many syndicators because they took a syndication course were a doctor right. or a dentist or you know somebody that had no experience whatsoever in real estate or being a syndicator but somebody said, well, you have access to a pool of people who have money and here's how you connect the dots on X, Y, and Z. So go and raise a bunch of money for an apartment building, 250 units in Houston at blah, 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 pro forma rate and da, 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 da. And then all of a sudden, because their assumptions were asked backwards and they didn't think about, you know, interest rates being at seven or an arm adjusting or a whatever. Now these syndicators are gonna be in a whole world of hurt and also a lot of investors are going to get hurt in that process. I think, like you said, Mike, kind of in parallel, how many people are going, I can buy a business now and I can get these boring businesses to make me X amount of cash flow, but they don't really have the chops or the understanding to go and run a real business. So I think that will cause challenges and opportunities for the right people who you know can capitalize on those things.
0: Yeah, I think my final thought lines up a lot with that, too. It's really interesting. The age of information has made um, operators or business buyers overconfident when they shouldn't be. But also it's made their friends and investors overconfident when they shouldn't be because everybody heard about all these people investing in syndications. And so it's like, and is it fueled by greed or is it fueled by confidence? But whatever it is, it's made people think like it's totally normal to send this guy $500,000 to do this development. Like he's flipped a few houses and now he's gonna do a ten million dollar apartment complex. And that's that's fine. There's everybody's supposed to move up. They're like so many people are jumping from one to the other. So I think that that age of information makes it funny. And on the business front, again last thought of something that has happened but I kind of forgot about it earlier when we were talking about other implications of Fed raising rates. Right. And so it essentially raises that the bill that, you know the the bond stuff to where you can get essentially zero risk money. If you have a million dollars, you can make like five to 7% on your money now, zero risk, like no risk at all. Um, that changed business valuations too. Like for our software companies that we have, because yeah. before in like 2021, our software companies, when they were getting valued for lenders or possible buyers, it was like 10 X our gross revenue. So like one of our companies were like, all right, our software company's worth 16 million bucks, 18 million bucks. We're talking to somebody about a sale back then and our revenue has gone up since then but our current value is probably like six million for that company because the other thing so it doesn't just affect um multiples for real estate when the free money or i guess when when the risk-free rate goes up to like a five or a seven that affects everything because it used to be like oh you could buy a business for 10 times net or 20 times net because you're getting a 5% return on your money and this thing can, can grow. And so I think it's important to know too those multiples have bought the stuff down. So if you're buying anything, if you're buying real estate, if you're buying businesses and you like educate yourself and you are ready, make sure you're not paying prices from like two years ago. Mm-hmm. Right? Like if somebody bought an apartment two years ago, like don't buy it for the same price. Or if somebody bought a business two years ago, don't buy it for the same price. Because just that like it's not a, like a fake number, but like the risk-free rate—it's—it's it, it's like a number that's out there that impacts investors that says, "Oh, I can just get a bond and make six percent. Why would I invest in you and make six percent?" Right. So it, it affects those business values too. It's important to think about. That's my final thought.
1: My final thought is: don't do stuff that you shouldn't have any business doing. There's a lot of people. I just—I was on a on a webinar actually in a mastermind that we're all part of that I don't know how these guys get through to present these some of these syndications but <laughs> they have zero experience and he did one deal and he was raising 15 million dollars from all these people kind of mush what you just said is like people are so confident uh, they don't want to they have almost fomo let me write a 50,000 and now they're lowering the thresholds of how much money you can invest too so instead of putting 100, 200, 500,000 you can invest as little as 25 grand and they're raising all this money and you do one deal. And all of a sudden you think you're going to do 200 or 300 successfully. It's a whole I different game. That. So I think it's the same thing with businesses is people need to just stay in their lanes, know what they're doing, but there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Good episode guys. Sorry for yes, all the technical fine. difficulties.
0: Good to see your p- it's perfect that you had all the technical difficulties on, on podcast episode one. Let's see. That's hilarious. <laughs> just <laughed> every time <laughs> you, gotta, you went away. You get, get them
1: out now. It had to be, man. Well, I have a if we're gonna do this every week, I got a couple more while I'm in Europe and then we'll record when I'm in the US. But any final thoughts, guys? Congratulations on episode one. I, I hope the audience loves it. Yeah, I yeah, think I it'd mean, be an I interesting
0: think- conversation next time to talk about the difference between bad operators and bad luck. You know, we've taken mm-hmm. a whole I've taken a whole lot of risks that like really paid off giant. But if the Fed had raised rates like during that, like, but there, but I could have gotten caught with my hand in the cookie jar too. And I've had times I got my ha- hand in the cookie jar. So I think it'd be really interesting to dissect some stuff in the future of like, these guys were frauds. These guys were ill experienced or these guys just had bad luck because there's a lot of failure that's happening. And it's like a fine line. There's a real fine line between uh, like fraud or too much risk and major success. Yep.
3: Man, I think Moot. that's... Go ahead, Maddie. Go, go ahead. I was just going to say that that was the one topic that I've been seeing more and more come up with in, in groups that were a part of investments that were a part of or just seen other communities and investors and syndicators and organizations that. There was one that I just saw the other day, which this guy, you know, two or three years ago, as I'm watching his little journey and story play out, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't envious and jealous of like, man, this guy is killing it. He's raising all this money. He's doing all these sexy, awesome shit that I want to be doing. And within the last like six months, there's stories of him coming out. One guy made a post the other day was like, hey, is anybody invested in a deal with this guy? And have you made any money? And it got like five, 600 comments of people straight up murdering this dude's reputation. And it was like, was he a fraud? Or was it just, hey, like some of it was like, hey, big boy, big girl investing clause. Like, you know, you invested in a deal. It still looked to be making sense. You're not getting dividends paid out. He's weathering the storm. Or is it, hey, this was, you know, bad operator, bad deal. So I think it's a good topic of conversation because I think we're going to see more of it play out. And I also think there's going to be some opportunities in there for people to think about. But overall, first episode I thought was great. And I know we kind of stayed on the vein of the economy and investments and things along those lines. But I know for the four of us, we've all talked about a variety of topics uh, outside of just those two veins. So I'm excited to see what we're going to continue to explore here.
2: Cool. The last thing that I'll say too, and same, same thread, and I found myself saying this a lot, but even starting my first business, like, dude, that was quite the run and quite the experience, but I was so inexperienced. I had no choice but to get out of my own way. Um, the market timing was perfect. The market that I was in was perfect. Like there were so many things that went right for me, and, you know, I get asked these questions like, how, how did you do this? And how sometimes it's, you know, whether it's uh, bad operators, bad actors, timing, whatever. I mean, it can be the same on the opposite side too. So I think just, uh, you know, realizing that luck has a big part to do in so much of it is just such a great point, Aaron. Um, yeah. yeah, great episode. This has been a ton of fun.
1: Mooch, any final thoughts?
0: That's it. I had like three final thoughts so far, so I better just rest my okay. case.
1: Well, loved it. <laughs> awesome. I think it's. I think part of why we wanted to do this is unveil some of our own challenges and vulnerabilities as entrepreneurs too. Um, I think people often, you know, we really want to try to bring realness to the social world. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of people who think they can just build these huge following bases and raise money and do syndications and pretend to do all these things. And I think what the audience will learn in this episode and other episodes in the future is that here you have four real entrepreneurs slugging through life in the real challenges of entrepreneurship with all kinds of daily challenges. And our goal is to be as real as physically possible and show people an honest, sincere path. So anyways, super fun. Sorry for all the technical yeah. difficulties, but there you go. First episode real and raw. Last final thought
3: too. would uh, we want to hear from you guys. So Um, I was thinking I'll throw my text line out there for anybody that wants to text us and give thoughts, comments, feedback, topics you want to talk, questions to any of the, you know, the hosts on the panel, uh, 844-447-1555. You guys can text that line and, again, shoot us feedback, questions, comments, topics. We want to curate a space that you guys are excited to plug into each and every week. So uh, reach out. Say what up to us.
1: And what we're going to do is we're going to record this weekly. We're going to get a little more organized over time, but I think for the first few weeks, we're just going to launch this on each of our own individual podcasts. We'll put everyone's social media handles, everyone's individual podcasts in the show, lo- show notes so everyone can connect um, with everyone as they need to. And then as it evolves, it may take a life of its own, but we wanted to try to get everybody this content as soon as possible. And Maddie, we'll put your phone number in uh, in the show notes too so people can connect to that number. Awesome, awesome, guys. Well, there it is. Mic drop. See you, buddies. <laughs> Peace. Peace. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.